God is in the house today. The Lord Jesus is inhabiting the praises of his people. The Holy Spirit is being poured out with healing and power, which some of us need more than others. Jesus promises to meet us in the broken places. Broken hearts, broken dreams. You experienced a broken promise. Some of us got broken bones. Two bones, fifth metatarsal, boot for four weeks. Didn't come here to talk about my foot. But I came here to talk about my Lord. And I'm glad to welcome all of those joining us at Christ Journey Gables and Christ Journey Online, wherever you are from all over the world. And today I am excited about the promise we just heard that God will rebuild, that God will restore, And through the story that we have been studying in the life of prophet Elisha, there is a word here for somebody today. I'm included in that. Elisha, who had the audacity when his mentor, Elijah, one of the greatest men of God in the history of his revealed word and truth, He's on his way out, and Elijah, one of the most powerful men of God ever, asks Elisha, what would you have of me? And Elisha says, I want a double portion of your spirit. What? What kind of audacity is that? Can you imagine? I just want twice the power that has been driving your life and your ministry. And then what we learned is that Elisha didn't want it for power's sake. He didn't want it for himself. He wanted it so that the master's ministry could continue in his nation because I'm telling you, times were desperate in his nation. And uh, people were in extreme need. And so from the stories that we've been studying, you can see from the stories, in the stories that we're unpacking, it's like people were ready to say, hey, all I need is a miracle. You know, we're, we're calling the entire series, you know, they're, they're sizing up your situation, the challenge at hand, all I need is a miracle. You ever been there? We're calling this series, When All You Need Is a Miracle. Who hasn't been there? Times are desperate, and desperate times call for, the Bible says, powerful faith. So what I want to do is, once again, invite us to open our imaginations to the declaration of the blessing from Ephesians, the letter that Paul wrote, chapter 3, and uh, wrap our hearts and minds around it again. We have fun with this last week. We're going to do it again this week. Take a good breath, speak so as to be heard, and let's read together, shall we? Now to him who is able to do immeasurably more than all we ask or imagine according to his power that is at work within us. To him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations forever and ever. Amen. Amen? Amen. Now what that doesn't mean is that we get to tell God what to do. What that doesn't mean is that God is like some miracle factory on demand where you can, if you know the code, you can pull the right knob on the vending machine and get you the miracle that you want. That's not what that means. That doesn't mean that, uh, that you tell God what to do. 
What it means is that nothing is too hard for God. And what it means is that we pray big knowing that nothing is too hard for God. And it means that God is the one who does his work of immeasurably more. But did you notice where he does it? In us. It's an inside job. So when God does his miracle work, he moves under the hood and invites us to become his people across time for whatever desperate times we're facing, your family's facing, whatever broken places you're bringing, whatever hardship our nation is in today. And today, we enter the time machine once again. You know that DeLorean time machine that we saw back to the future? We're going back to the future once again in the story of a powerful man. But the thing, we've already talked about the power of Elijah, but now there's another powerful man today. And he would have loved a DeLorean, by the way. We get to know him, you'll see. He's a non-believer. In fact, he's an enemy of Israel. He's the commander of the Syrian army, and as such, he has direct access to the king, most powerful position in the land. So this is a powerful man. He uh, has a national position. He has material possessions. And man, this guy is personally connected. He's got the power, the power to get things done. And as a powerful man, it followed for him that Israel's God was not first on his go-to list when it came to getting things done in life. You want something, you take it by violence. That's his story. By, by military force. He's got the army at his command. People do what he says. And at the time, war was the way that nations expanded their land base, their territory. We don't see that in our day, do we? They just take it. This is Naaman. They, the way that they increase their workforce, the way that they increase their riches, they subjugate people around them, they enslave the conquered, and then they tax them, making them pay tribute. Now, speaking of riches, he was also schooled in that line of thinking as well. You don't always have to kill people to get what you want. Sometimes you can just buy them. Make them an offer they can't refuse. It's the power of riches. He's a powerful man. And he didn't have to believe in miracles. <laughs> he believes in power. This is his story. It reminds me of the song, I don't believe in miracles. I've been around, I've seen enough. The only way to get along, you must be strong. You must be tough. Life is one big bluff. The spoils go to the strong. And who of us have never had that thought in our life in this world? Maybe you're in a situation right now where that seems very apparent to you. 2 Kings chapter 5, verse 1, his name is Naaman. He's the strong, powerful man. Verse 1, now Naaman was commander of the, Lord's, of the army of the king of Aram also known as Syria, the Lord's enemy at the time. He was a great man in the sight of his master. He was highly regarded because through him, the Lord had given victory to Aram. He was a valiant soldier, but 
He had leprosy. All that power, and it wasn't enough. He's a great man, great resources, but he has a great problem. Leprosy. Now, at the time, it was one of the most feared diseases. Some forms were extremely contagious, like AIDS when it was first coming into culture in our country. Extremely contagious, most feared disease, many times incurable, and the worst cases end in fatality. That was leprosy in his day. Now, verse 2. Now, bands from Aram had gone out and taken captive a young girl from Israel. She served Naaman's wife. Okay, so here's a scenario. They went out and kidnapped a girl from Israel. He sent thugs out to raid the borders, and they stole a girl away from her homeland, ripped her off right out of her house, and brought her back so that she would be Naaman's wife's house slave. Verse 3, she said to her mistress, her new woman in charge, if only my master, that's Naaman, would go see the prophet who's in Samaria, he would cure him of his leprosy. So Naaman, you know, Naaman's not the kind, of, the kind of man who believes in superstition. He believes in power, right? But his wife tells him that the girl that they kidnapped and brought to be her slave has told her that there's a guy who has some kind of power that could heal, and that mind worm gets into his head, and he just can't turn it loose, so he takes the idea to his boss the most powerful man, the king. Verse 4, Naaman went to his master and told him that that little girl, what that girl from Israel had said, and then his king says, well, by all means, go, go. I'll send a letter to the king of Israel. Next thing you know, Naaman is standing before Israel's king, most powerful man in Israel, and he's got 750 pounds of silver, 150 pounds of gold, and 10 new outfits, clothing. He's got a whole new wardrobe that he's bringing for negotiations. Gives the king the letter, and it says, with this letter, I'm sending my servant Naaman so that you may cure him of his leprosy. And the king freaks out. <laughs> I mean, he, he thinks that the enemy king is picking a fight with him. He says, why is he asking me to do a miracle? Right? And so uh, the king freaks out. He thinks he's picking a fight. He can't believe that he's being asked to do a miracle because here's what powerful men know. Powerful men know that miracles just don't happen. You make your own miracles happen because you have power. And What's happening to the king of Israel? He's suddenly realizing the same thing that Naaman has already come to know, that there are times when all of your power isn't enough. And this is kind of an irony in the story because now you've got two men with great power and great possession and a great problem that they don't know how to solve. Elisha hears about this and offers to the king of Israel, hey, I'll help, I'll, I'll do what I can to help. And uh, so Naaman takes his entire impressive entourage built for power, all those chariots, all those horses, all those wagons with all that silver and gold and wardrobe, and he takes it to Elisha's place. 
And Elisha doesn't even come out to see him, to greet him, to meet him. Instead, he sends his servant out with these words, go wash yourself in the Jordan and your flesh will be restored. It'll, you'll be cleansed. And, uh, and Naaman's enraged. He's offended. I mean, he's got a short fuse, but man, it's already exploded, and he's got this anger that's just oozing, and he, as he's leaving, he's complaining to his servants that are in the entourage, you know, listen to this, I thought that he would surely come out to me, and he would wave his arms over the place, and he would cure the spot of my leprosy. I know of way better rivers where I come from than the Jordan River in Israel. Couldn't I just wash in them and be cleansed? So incensed. I mean, this guy is angry and enraged, and he leaves with all of his power and with his disease. Well, at some point, one of his servants in the entourage works up the nerve to go to this angry man. You know, sometimes powerful angry men are hard to approach. One of the servants in his entourage goes to this very angry, powerful man and, and, and says, if, if the, I was just wondering, mighty Naaman, if the prophet had told you to do some great thing, you would have done it, right? So how much more when he tells you, wash, be cleansed? And we're not told the backstory or what's going on in this powerful man's mind, uh, but somewhere in there, it, he, he hits a turning point. He turns a page in his personal internal journey, and he decides that he will, in desperation, goes down and dips himself in the murky Jordan seven times, just as the man of God said, and look what happens. His flesh was restored and became clean like that of a little boy. Now, there's the story that we're investigating. We're just going to unpack it a little bit today. Can you see any takeaways for your life in the 305 in this story? I do. Here's one. We love power, don't we? We love the power of wealth. We love the power of position. We love the power to know who to call to get things done. You know, my cousin knows a guy. <laughs> That's power. The power, we, we, in the 305, we kind of like the power of anger and unleashing it. Doesn't it make you feel strong? Maybe that's part of where road rage comes from. Back up, you don't know who's going to explode. When we feel offended, sometimes being angry can make us feel so strong. But the human, there's a, the main takeaway for me is another power that Naaman possesses that could make the difference for you today, too. It's the power to change his mind. You ever heard this? The man who can't change his mind can't change anything. Hmm. Uh, did you notice in the story that it's not until Naaman uses that power to change his mind that God then changes his circumstances? Hold up. Could that be true for you? I don't know what load you've been carrying. I don't know what burden you bear. I don't know what embarrassment you've been trying to keep hidden. 
because it's revealing some of your powerlessness. I don't know where, uh, where you're doing everything in your power to fix that thing, but it's not being fixed. This is Naaman's story. I think it's our story too. And in Naaman's story, he's, in, he's being invited to think some new thoughts and then take some new steps. What, how? By using the power of his will. We would call it freedom of choice. The power of your will. And what he's going to discover is that the living God who revealed himself through Israel and her prophets can free him up. That God's the one who's got the power. He's got the power. The truly higher power that you talk about, this is Naaman's journey. He's he's going to learn that God's got the higher power and is willing to bring it into his situation, into your situation. But the key to unlocking the higher power is turning from your own. Truly letting God's thoughts take precedence over your own. So when Elisha gives him God's word on the situation, what does Naaman do? (laughs) He gets mad. It's kind of his go-to place, you know? He blows up about everything. And then he says this. You know, I thought he was going to come out to me. He's going to treat me like the great man big deal that I am. I thought that he would come out to me and he would wave his arms, he would give me some ceremony, that he would show some respect, that he would do it in the way that I deserve. I thought that he would raise his hand. I thought that he would make some presentation. I thought that he would know, he, I know better rivers than the Jordan River. I thought he'd have a better plan. And it wasn't until, I thought, I thought, I thought, it wasn't until He let God's thoughts supersede his thoughts that the miracle found him. What's God doing doing miracles for his enemies? What kind of God is that? That loves his enemies? So, what's really going on here? Hubris has taken him down. That's my take. You think about, give your own, but what's really going on? Hubris is taking him down. Naaman is in the death grip of pride and doesn't know it. Hubris, you know what that is? Exaggerated human pride, overinflated self-confidence. Naaman is full of himself. That's his real problem. But he doesn't fully see it. He believes in power, and he's got the power, and so... It's just one of many stories throughout the entire Bible, Scripture over time, of where someone is literally trapped in their own skin, trapped in their own circumstances, by their own self-will. It's like the door, the, the door to the jail cell is locked from the inside. Pharaoh with Moses was there. I got the power. But it cost him his son's life in that story. The Philistine giant, Goliath, was there, trash-talking David until his hubris took him down in a pretty good aim. And then it cost him his head and his life. 
Then there's mighty Samson, you know, the judge, the hero, the superhero for Israel. And he thought, he thought, oh, I could handle this. I can handle Delilah. I can handle a few jokes along the way. I can handle, I'll do it my way. And this is Samson's story. He's brought down because of pride, because he thought he could handle it without God. And it took his freedom, it took his dignity, it took his eyes, and it took his life. It took the impact of his ministry over time. You know, this is the sin that the Bible says always goes before a fall. This is the one. But it's a sneaky one (laughs) because it doesn't feel like you're falling when you're being captured in it. It's sneaky because it's, it kind of, pride kind of gives you a false positive. Like, you got this. It's what you think. It's what you want. Jesus told the story of the rich fool. That was the other image up here. You know, the economy was going so well, the margins are heading positively, the profits are up, crops are great. So the entrepreneurial overseer, the CEO, the president says, you know, here's what we need to do. We're going to tear down those barns. We're going to build bigger barns. We're going to fill them up with all of this, and I'm going to keep it for myself. And then I'm going to say to myself, self, take it easy. You got it made. Eat, drink, and be merry. And then here's what Jesus says to that very powerful rich man, you fool. (laughs) You fool. This very night, your life is over. And then Who gets what you've kept for yourself? Is hubris. Costly hubris. It cost him everything. Naaman is on that road. He's a great warrior. Great wealth. But a great problem. And then, like a fallen Humpty Dumpty, has to learn in experience that all the king's horses and all the king's men can't put him together again. Literally, that's where he turns to the power. But then what he's invited to do is to discover that there is a greater king, the king of the universe, and when Naaman uses his power to change his mind release his pride and get over himself, then that God will come to his aid. He's got to get over himself. He's got to get over his own ideas on what to do and how to do it. He's got to get over disbelief. He's got to get over his sense of entitlement that he somehow deserves better than what has come to him. He's got to get over the need to tell God how to do his business. He's got to get over the, uh, you know, the, the, the thought that he's a better doctor than his physician and would know a better prescription. You know, the internet makes every patient a physician. And we all go into our doctors these days telling them what we need. Naaman, Naaman thought that he could tell God how to do it his way. And God had to remind him that he's not coming to Burger King that he is standing before Yahweh King, God of the universe, maker of heaven and earth, who reveals himself through his prophets. And when his word is taken at his word and our thoughts are subjugated to God's thoughts, then breakthrough comes. 
He's standing before Yahweh King. And when he humbles himself before the God revealed by the prophet, his cleansing comes. But he's got to change his mind to align with God, who then reveals the cleansing power. You know, some people come to the gospel story and we look at Jesus on the cross all beaten and bloodied and we don't see power. We see weakness. You know, what, what some see is the stream of blood flowing from a river of weakness and they imagine, I know many better power rivers than that. Power that can get things done. Adolf Hitler complained to his Nazi minister of armaments and war production, Albert Speer, it's been our misfortune to have the wrong religion. Speaking of German history and the Reformation that brought Lutheranism to the, head, to the fore. Why did it have to be Christianity with its meekness and flabbiness from inside the Third Reich? Nietzsche, will to power. It's all about power. Get the power. He, he said this life itself is essentially appropriation, injury, overpowering what is alien and weak. Name and story reveals a greater power than all human pride, humility. And a child first shows that power. <laughs> this is so ironic. A little girl who's been kidnapped from her parents, stolen away from her homeland, but instead of letting fear and bitterness and hatred have her, what does she do? She chooses to hold dear her faith and even shares it with her enemy. Who does that? She's the reason Naaman hears the good news. She's letting her light shine. She's blooming where she's planted. She's sharing the word of God through his prophet so that even her captor could be blessed. That's the miracle of a child's faith. Didn't Jesus tell us that a little child would lead us into the kingdom? Why? Because they're demonstrating humility over hubris. Could that be? And then there's Naaman, Naaman's moment of truth when... Um, when he realizes that, you know what? Wait a minute, nothing I've tried is working. I have exhausted my power, <laughs> and it's not working. And then his servant, he's thinking, hey, you know, he came up to me, maybe, hey, maybe he's right. I am smart enough to know when it's time to change my mind. Get off the dead horse if you want to keep riding. And so he does. And he takes that entourage, you can imagine it in your mind's eye, down to the humble Jordan River. Dismounts, makes his walk forward into that murky water. He's got squishiness under his feet on the riverbank and he's barely getting into it. And now it's like, what am I doing? Who is that crazy guy? That little girl, he steps a little bit farther in. It's starting to feel a little chilly. Can't see his way because the water's murky. He's thinking, I would rather be in the Euphrates right now. 
takes another step. He's now all the way in, up to his neck. And he takes the first dip. One. Two. Three. Four. Five. Six. Seven. It looks at his hand, and it's not how it used to look. It says his flesh was cleansed like a little baby boy, like a boy's flesh, because he took the step of faith. Naaman's moment of truth. Couldn't help but think of that when last March of 2020, we were with the Christ Journey Group and had the privilege of being in the Jordan River celebrating baptism. I'm sure the water looked a little bit cleaner than it did when Naaman was putting himself into it. But you know, here are grown-ups who are people of wealth and power and position who are saying, I'm humbling myself to wrap myself in Jesus who died, was buried, and is now rising from the dead, the same river that he was in when John the Baptist put him down and brought him up, and Jesus' father said, this is my son in whom I am well pleased. Giving testimony, there's no power in the water. The power is in the humility that displaces hubris and the faith that takes the step toward grace. And then it feels the embrace of that grace as a declaration of faith. You know, Naaman also, verse 15, it says, now this is Naaman makes a declaration of faith after he comes out of the water where he stepped in by faith, following God's word. Now I know there is no God in all the world except in Israel. Telling you, it's a beautiful thing when a powerful man discovers and declares his faith in Almighty God. That's what's happening here. Now I'm thinking about Chadwick Boseman. He's captivated audiences as an actor in 42, Marshall, Black Panther. You've heard of him. He took his Christian faith with him when he went into the movie career. In 2018, speaking to the graduating class at Howard University, this is what he said. Sometimes it takes the sting of pain to activate passion and seek God's purpose in your life to get you out of yourself. He went on, he said, God says in Jeremiah, I know the plans I have for you, plans to prosper you, not to harm you, plans to give you hope and a future. And then he challenged those students. Maybe we got some students in the crowd today, parents of students who are trying to think, what am I supposed to be doing with my life in this world? Here's what Bozeman said. Remember, the struggles along the way are only meant to shape you for your purpose. God has a plan for your future, a plan for you, a plan for the great and a plan for the small. God used a small girl to make a big difference. Why? Humility. Look at this. Look at this. She let God's thoughts supersede her own. She got over herself. She got over what's going on in her life. She, her fear, her disbelief, her sense of entitlement. I deserve better than this, God. Aren't I one of your kids? Her, her need to tell God how to do his business doesn't show up in the story at all. Instead, you know, her thought, her thought that God needs to do it my way. How did I wind up being kidnapped? Aren't I a part of the chosen people? Instead, she's just there to bear witness to her God. She treasures 
in her heart the faith that gives her life meaning. Maybe the real takeaway is this. When you realize your power isn't enough, then you release your way to go God's way and then watch him make a way. That's what humility takes you into. Now, we're not told what happened when uh, Naaman got back to his home in Aram. I'm wondering, you think he forgot about that girl? Or do you think maybe he went to her and had a private moment saying, I owe you so much. I am so thankful that you talked and then I followed and do you think he spent any time with her? You think, he, you think maybe he rewarded her? Took some of that 750 pounds of silver that he's got out there and that 150 pounds of gold, maybe gave her a new wardrobe? I don't know. You think maybe he said, you know where you need to be with your family, and he took that chariot and those horses and he just drove her right back over the border and went up to her home and they celebrated a family reunion. Do you think that something like that happened? Because his life had changed. We don't know. We're not told in the story. What we're told is that when he changed his mind, God changed his circumstances. What would have happened if he hadn't changed his mind? The guy's going to die with leprosy. With all of his power, with all of his riches, but he's going to die and leave it to somebody else. What's going to happen to you? if you don't change your mind. When I first met Cliff, his heart was literally dying in his chest. His physical heart was dying. He explained to me that he had to keep riding that exercise bike to keep the blood flowing so that his heart could stay alive. And, and his spiritual heart was hard. When I left his home that day, he told his son, he'll never be back. Cliff was an atheist who told me, you know, I would as soon sue you as ever come to listen to you preach. But as strange as this sounds, this is what happened. A friendship developed between us. And one day, some years later, his body no longer able to go on, his son calls me and invites me to come to his hospital room where the family has gathered around his bed. And Cliff declared his faith in Jesus Christ with his family. And I'm telling you, I love his family. I will never forget that day. We stay in touch regularly. They've moved outside of the city now. But somewhere along in our relationship, Cliff told me that after I left his home on that very first day, that very first visit, that their house servant had come to him, a young woman who had, was here from South America, some country in South America. She had overheard our conversation and me talking to him about God, and she went up to Mr. Cliff. She said, Mr. Cliff, why don't you trust God? So what I'm thinking is that for all the Naamans in the world, God is still trying to bring breakthrough through humility. And sometimes we just don't listen as quickly. And then we don't get in on it because we don't know what we don't know. But when Cliff told me that, it made me think of this story, Naaman, and God speaking through a humble young woman. You may not think your words carry much weight, but it made all the difference in the world for this powerful, angry man. 
inviting hubris to find the power of humility. The Bible says, humble yourself in the sight of the Lord and he will lift you up. So what would it look like to take that step for you? Like obviously, I don't know what's going on in your life, but I'm telling you, this is where the power is. The power is in humility. Where has your pride kept you from trusting God? From obeying his call to you? That's something that you know he wants you to do. You still haven't done it. Because you're thinking, oh, I got a better power river than that. And yet, you don't know what you don't know, and you won't know until you take the step. Into what? Into the day of healing. Into the day of freedom. Into the day of salvation. How? Release your way to God's way and watch him make a way. I think that's the bottom line of the story. Change your mind and trust God to change your circumstances instead of usurping and manipulating a power game to try to make it happen. But there's another application. So right now I just want to talk to all of us who are believers, Christ journeyers here, and I think it's around that little girl. You know, where could your invitation make a difference for somebody in your life? And how many of us have found our way into the Christ journey because somebody invited us? A friend, a neighbor, a relative. I was at the doctor's office getting blood work this week and the lady drawing blood looks at me and says, I know where I know you from. I've been to your church. And then she told me that one of our members who was a client, a patient, had invited her to come. What difference could, actually it was an Easter invitation last year and she said, and I came. And I remember when you had all those kids on the, up front and you didn't give them any candy. <laughs> I said, that's what I wanted everybody to remember from that, from that day. I said, I hope I'll see you again. She said, oh, I've been several times. I said, well, Easter's just around the corner. You know what, maybe your invitation, <laughs> maybe you just, Taking one of these little, you know, Easter's coming. There's a God who loves you, who could help you, and I'd love for you to be my guest. Have you been letting hardship or your sense of entitlement that somehow God owes you and he hasn't done it your way, and so you're just gonna hold out on him, and who's gonna miss his message of opportunity because you're upset with God instead of humbling yourself and saying, Lord, use me. It's not about me, but I would love if you would use me to help somebody else find you. And I want to say to young people, you're not too young for God to use you powerfully, to change the world powerfully because you're not being swallowed up into the circumstances of your surroundings, but because you're taking everywhere you go the light of Jesus Christ and the love of God that can enter into the most deadly places and turn them into opportunities of hope. Shall we pray? Gracious Almighty God, we humble ourselves before you and ask that you would help open our eyes wider 
Holy Spirit, that you would sensitize our souls to remember, that you would help us remember the calls that you have made upon our lives so that we could find our way down to the river and take the dip that you invited us to take and in the act of obedience find the healing that you've long been longing to give when we let you be Lord. Is that your step today? Lord, I humble myself. I'm sorry for grieving your spirit. I'm sorry for thinking that my plans are better than your plans. I'm sorry for getting in my own way of the future that you have for me. I'm sorry, Lord. And now receive his forgiveness. You're so kind and gracious. I just thank you that you love me the way you do, that you're patient with me, that you're kind to me, that you have plans to give me a future and a hope. I'm sorry for believing that you would be taking my life away, that you would be taking my power away. I'm sorry. Help me right now to step into your power and to be an instrument of your healing grace and peace. And friend, if you're like my friend Cliff and really believe that it's all up to you, perhaps this is be the day that God would help you see it's not. That he has come to your rescue and that he wants to be with you. And you can say, Lord Jesus, come into my life. Forgive my sins. I want to honor your thoughts. And I will follow your lead. Be my Savior. In your name I pray. Amen.